we have this harsh, really harsh critic in our head that kind of wants us to do what wants the best for us. But what it's actually doing is activating the threat systems in our primitive emotional brain. So we're actually kind of undermining our own performance as well by that harsh tone. As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. So welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I have the distinct pleasure today to be with Vanessa King board member of Action for Happiness, author of 10 Keys to a Happier Living. I've had the opportunity to follow some of Vanessa's work, which led me to reaching out to understand in today's environment, this topic of happiness and how we both from an inter-self and from an outward perspective in our communities, relationships, work, and life, how we pursue happiness in the midst of so much change. So Vanessa, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, welcome. You're most welcome. Yeah, let me just kind of go yes. So, Vanessa, as you think through all of the incredible work you've done around the world on your research and work inside of happiness, I would love to hear what you have found some of the best that have actually achieved happiness. What do we need to be focusing on as leaders to do just that? Well, I, think, I mean, it's kind of interesting because when I st- first started getting into this work, and I've spent many years working in big organizations. I started out as a finance professional and then moved into the kind of people side of organizations, worked in investment banking, worked in consultancy for many years. And then when I uncovered that there was this new branch of psychology, which was looking at how things go well, how do we flourish? How do we be the best that we can be? Which surprisingly, there have been, up until about 25 years ago, there have been a tiny proportion of psychological research that was focused on that. So I was very excited when I found this, because I was doing a lot of work in talent, in organizations, designing talent management systems, talent development, talent leadership, all that stuff. And when I came across this, I thought this has to be part of the future. But at that time, so I went to study at University of Pennsylvania, with the, this is the epicenter of the world for this branch of psychology, if you like, with Martin Seligman. And it's quite interesting because when I came back to kind of then put this stuff in that I'd learned into practice, you couldn't use the H word, the happiness word, in organizations or businesses. Leaders did not want to do that. It felt too soft. You could use words like resilience. Well-being at that time meant gym membership and healthy food in the canteen. And I think the world has come on now. In the last 10 or 12 years, the world has really come on. And now I'm finding organizations that do reach out and are think about this word, happiness, and not just happier at work, but how do we contribute to the kind of happiness of our employees and our wider kind of ecosystem of the organization generally. So firstly, it's thinking about what does this word really mean, happiness? Because it is actually a word we throw around quite a lot, but we don't spend much time unpacking what that really means. And I think that's one of the roles that we do at Action for Happiness and my role as head of psychology and workplaces that we is a key thing that I do is helping people think about well, what does this really mean and what does it take? And firstly, you know, it's 
it's not about reaching this kind of place of nirvana. You know, you're on this kind of happiness cloud and that, and that's it for the rest of your life. Happiness has ups and, you know, life has ups and downs. So understanding what sort of happiness is, and that's why the first book that I wrote, I called 10 Keys to Happier Living as opposed to Happiness. There are two forms, two key kind of forms of, of happiness in some of the kind of research and stuff that I think go hand in hand. So one is kind of pleasure, joy, that kind of fleeting emotional happiness, those mood states that we can have. And that's often what we think of when we think of happiness, we think of pleasure. The ancient Greeks called that hedonia. It's where our word hedonism comes from. So you can have too much of a good thing. Okay. But they also talked about this thing called eudaimonia, which is leading a life of fulfillment, of reaching your potential, of living a life of virtue, you know, contributing to the world around you and to your relationships. And that's kind of interesting because that form of happiness, which, you know, I think most of us actually, when we stop to think about it, we get that that's part of happiness. But that doesn't always feel good, does it? You know, if you're working towards, you know, a sort of challenging goal or you're, you know, looking to kind of really grow and develop in an area, that can be a bit, it can be painful, you know, and just staying that course. So I think the kind of the two, you know, the psychology and the kind of physiology, if you like, of the two work together. So when we are working towards those challenging goals, you know, we inevitably hit blocks and obstacles, they're stretching. And a little bit of pleasure and joy along the way can actually help us on the path to greater fulfillment. So I think those two forms of happiness are kind of go hand in hand, if you like. So it's not very long. <laughs> I don't know whether I've really answered your question, but I think it's really important to kind of lay out the landscape of what we mean by happiness. And actually, if we look at the ingredients that our work, Action for Happiness, is focused on the things that are within our control, whether individually or collectively, more systemically to shift and change because there are some things that affect how happy you feel or how happy I feel that aren't in our control and it's actually there's quite a lot of ingredients go in it but what are the things that the research the science shows can make a difference and that's what we focus on. Vanessa as you talk about you mentioned earlier that in the workplace for many years we individuals were not talking about the H word and they were, you know, I think it's one more thing, unfortunately, that our world has done to cover up the realism of mm. bringing your whole self to work, put on a face and act as though, and asking the question, are you okay? How are you doing? Why is that taking place? No, what's really going on? You know, you hear a lot about individuals that are like, this is the first time I've ever been asked, like, what's really going on and how can we help so that you can bring your best self to work. But have you found that this is one more component of that, that our workplaces have had to unpack the fact that we didn't even want to talk about happiness in the it, workplace? Or even unhappiness in the workplace. You know, often those conversations would be kind of in corners, people moaning at the water cooler or the coffee machine or whatever, but not actually having those conversations together and certainly not bringing in what was going on at home. You know, I think one thing that COVID has done is actually made it a little easier to have those conversations because we've literally seen into people's homes and things like that. And I think it's enabled, at least to begin with, a slightly more human conversation. And as we move back to something more like hybrid working, however that bottoms out at the end of the day, you know, I think we're more able to hopefully have those conversations about what's going on for me in my life as a whole 
therefore how do I best, you know, how can I navigate all of that to best contribute at work as well as best contributing as best I can, you know, outside of work. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's yeah. certainly something that we believe is driving the discussion of change, right? Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, it's really about realization that mm. these two things can coexist in a way that's not making the human feel like they're torn both ways, but yeah. that they can bring self, that we can rise up a generation of leaders who care enough yeah. to ask the questions, to yeah. support the team while aligning to vision, objectives, and goals. And Vanessa, our belief in our research and work that we do at the Talent Magnet Institute shows and has proven that when you lead that way and when you work in an organization that leads in a way that is inviting, that helps you feel valued, heard, and understood, Mm. the organization performs better and people are genuinely more engaged and happier as a whole person. Absolutely. Um, so it very much aligns. It is very much aligned. I mean, if you think that human beings have a core psychological need to feel connected, to feel part mm. of, connected to other people. And in the workplace, you think about how much time we spend at work. It's really important. And often those, you know, we feel we can't have those sorts of, they're different types of relationships to relationships we might have at work, but, you know, they're a professional level. But that doesn't even say we can't be kind of authentic and caring and, trusting and we know i mean there were, you know people will be aware of the work on psychological safety i'm sure that google kind of kind of helped publicize that the key differentiating factor between high performing teams and average or poorly performing teams was a sense of psychological safety in those teams where people could be open about what was going on if they had an idea they didn't censor it because it was stupid because they thought other people would think it was stupid so they held back, you know, which reduces innovation. And they weren't, you know, people in the team, when they were a psychologically safe team, they kind of notice what's going on for their colleagues and for their team members as a leader. I mean, that, and there was some really interesting research that I came across recently by Justin Berg and colleagues that found that when people noticed emotions, and this was done in the workplace, They noticed the emotions of a colleague or, you know, if you're a leader, you know, one of your team members and just checked in with them. Oh, you looked a little bit worried in that meeting. Anything on your mind? Or you look really excited at that idea. Is that something that, you know, you feel really kind of engaged by? And it was interesting. They found that when when a leader or a team member did that, it built trust Mm. in those teams. And particularly if it was the kind of, you know, they were noticing unpleasant emotions. And but when people feel trusted, it's only when people feel a sense of trust and a sense of safety can they bring their whole self. But what was really interesting about that research is it didn't matter if you didn't get the emotion right. So if you said, you know, oh, hi, Mike, I just noticed you, Mike, you're looking a little bit, you know, a little bit concerned about that conversation. Is that, is that, is that right? It doesn't matter. You might say, no, no, I wasn't worried. It just made me think. But the fact that somebody had bothered to actually notice and ask you made you feel seen, made you feel cared for, and was w- wanting people wanted to listen to you. So it's just what I really love about this research and this psychology, and it's just amazing to me that you know we haven't really focused on this stuff in organisations for the longest time. Is that often it's about these tiny things that we as leaders and managers can do tiny things. So it's not about 
you know, having to get to grips with an enormous competency framework and processes and structures. It's about these tiny micro human connections. And that's what I focus on in my work with leaders and managers these days is really understanding the kind of psychological ingredients we need to kind of human beings need to feel good and function well, but then translating those into kind of micro behaviors in the workplace. Vanessa, there's so much alignment down to even the discussion cards and questions we encourage our leaders that follow us in our community and that participate in our learning journeys and our trainings and our group coaching and go through our learning experiences. We encourage people to take one question and utilize that question to create engagement this week. And we have countless leaders all over the United States and overseas that will post, they'll make a tweet, they'll post a message, they'll send us a note that says, this is the question I leveraged this week. Yeah. And I learned my people, I learned something about my team that I never knew. I always say in our sentiment data, we can and will be able to, as we're building up our kind of data analytics function, measure that team, those questions that you ask, make your team feel as and, and let them know you care. You genuinely care. Yeah. And for some reason in leadership, we've gotten away from having those conversations that yeah. just show. I mean, you said you don't even have to get the emotion correct, but just the fact that you asked and you listened helps yeah. your people feel valued, heard, and understood. That is so incredible. There's a reason why we're together today, (laughs) uh, many reasons why, and this is certainly one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So how has your message either changed or just amplified over the last 20 plus months? I think it what's been quite interesting, there's been a lot of organizations have been coming to us and to me and, you know, asking what can we do for our people to help. A, help them feel that we recognize that this has been a tricky few year and a half or we didn't actually anticipate it was going to be that long but, and that it's okay to not be okay, if you like. So, and then starting to kind of also wanting to make sh- how do you kind of nurture and build connection, which is fundamentally important as we've discussed through a kind of virtual environment. Yeah. So I think it's been, and I think it, like I said, I think it's been the awareness that we need to that well-being is well-being, happiness, resilience, whatever you call it, flourishing, thriving. It's the ingredients are all the same. It's how do we actually foster and nurture that? Because I, I think about this as, I think it's about psychological sustainability, you know, and it's quite interesting. I know a lot of people in organizations are feeling, if not fully burnt out, but on the pathway to feeling burnt out because they haven't had those small incidental things that, Often we think, oh, it's getting in the way of tasks, like, you know, they're having that conversation at the coffee machine or sitting down with a colleague over lunch or having a laugh with someone, with a client. You know, we haven't had those little pockets that kind of feed us, that break up the day, that kind of elevate our kind of mood states or emotions. We haven't had enough of those, which I think is really causing a bit of depletion. Plus, I think also with working from home, whilst it saves on commute times and things. And we know that longer commute times have, have certainly historically been associated with less happiness <laughs> in life. So getting rid of the commute, but we've also got rid of the boundaries between work and the rest of our lives. So I mean, one of the, I mean, thing I say is um, I'm very anti this phrase work-life balance 
because I was saying, you know, work is part of life and we need to think about how we get life balance, of which work is an important component for, for many of us. So I think it's kind of it's a different philosophy, really. And there's something to that work and what's really attracted me to the work that you do and the conversations that you have and the discussions you create is it's so much about us and mm. our emotional well-being. Um, mm. There's a phrase that we use often, relationally healthy, emotionally healthy, that at the end of the day, humans look for an easy answer. And mm. I do believe the whole work-life balance component was mm. another one of those things that someone created a phrase and said, this is the ultimate. And everybody tried to chase it. And then we realized after chasing it, this actually doesn't exist. This was a made yeah. up phrase. This isn't yeah. the way we were designed. We were designed to work and to live. We were designed yeah. to be in relationships and be in community. We yeah. were designed to take all of that and let it be our life. Our yeah. life is made up of, we're not just supposed to not work. You know, you're supposed to do something that you love. You're supposed to bring all of your energy and do it in a manner that you are confident in yourself, that you can bring your best self, that you can do it in an environment where people care and mm. that people are also dare to confront, that they're willing to have crucial conversations, not mm. run away from conflict because that's what makes us better. Right. Mm. And so many people live in a world of avoidance and are trying to create something because they think they're supposed to. Or they think that, you know, there's a lot, I think, going on in our organizations where people think, oh, I can't bring that up or I can't say that or I can't highlight that I'm struggling with this or whatever. Or I'm not happy with this because it's probably just me and I feel ashamed and people will think I'm not strong or I'm not competent. And so for a lot of kind of embarrassment and shame, we kind of hide stuff. And that's going on all over our organizations. Yeah. You know, so people are kind of holding back part of themselves. When I'm running programs and things, often one of the things I, when we're getting people, take, you know, taking people through a process of really kind of understanding the psychology and thinking about the practical application of it, you often people will say, God, I just realized it's not just me that worries about that or it's not just me that feels finds that tricky or difficult it's not just me it's actually a shared thing it's a common thing a sense of relief for people and that's sort of binding people then actually i've got that vulnerability and fred's got that vulnerability and mary's got that vulnerability and so actually we're all in this together so as you as you think through the ways that early to mid career professionals, as we develop and we educate and we share and we encourage and we inspire early to mid-career professionals, what would you be saying to those early to mid-career professionals who know there's a better way to live, to lead, to manage through life, but are seeking this type of wisdom? How would you encourage them to lead well in their work? Well, I mean, one of the things that Myself and a, a bunch of colleagues did through what well, was actually pre-lockdown, so it came out just about the right time, is we were thinking about how do we take these psychological principles and not just apply them as individuals for individuals, and that's the framework, the 10 keys to happy living that developed for action for happiness, wrote the book out, things. But actually, what are some of the other principles that can be applied as leaders and managers for ourselves and at a kind of for our teams and as leaders of whole organizations. And I'm hoping that the more people get familiar with these, the more they can get embedded into 
the way teams are run, the way we lead and manage, the way we design our organization. And I, we talked, I talked about them in the kind of, in the latest book, the kind of creating the world we want to live in there. And there's five really simple principles. One is that the power of connection that we've talked about. That's the number one thing is you as a leader and manager is nurture and foster your connections with others and the caring for your team. I mean, in fact, there's Adam Grant, who's somebody I studied with at Wharton. And he, a while back, he wrote a book called Givers and Takers. And he found that people who help others in organizations, that can be a pathway to success. You have to balance it with, he talks about being otherish. So what can I do to help others, but isn't too costly, isn't going to undermine my own performance, my own sustainability. But this pathway of kind of, you know, what can I do to help you be a success, to help us be a success, even if that's tiny things. So and like we talked about that tuning into what's going on for people. So I think there's something about really caring for other people, not getting so caught up in your own your own head if you like. Then there is a sense of kind of competence and mastery and how do you kind of facilitate that for yourself and for your team. And again, there was some other really interesting research that shows came up Harvard that showed the difference between a good day at work and the worst day at work was feeling a sense of progress, like daily progress. So that's not achieving your annual goals or the team's annual goals. It's micro progress. So what does that mean as a leader? It means, well, you, you know, what does that mean for yourself? But also with your team, it means actually having a conversation with what's, what's a goal for this week, perhaps. And this is an example. I know a leader that does this. He sits down with his teams and their weekly ones, team members, weekly one-to-ones. Yeah, what's your goal for the upcoming week? And what's something that's likely to get in the way? And how can I help you remove that barrier? So it's really helping them feel that sort of small scale progress that then builds up, you know, rather than just having that one goal out there. So there's that. And then there's a sense of cultivating a sense of control and autonomy in people. And this is a kind of fine judgment. And it's kind of an, it's an interesting one because this is a psychological need we all have for some autonomy. Yeah, it's quite hard as a manager. So you have a need for, you know, for some sense of control autonomy, and you're responsible for the work of the people in your team, which can lead us to micromanaging <laughs> if we don't cultivate trust. Yet for them to do their best work, they need to know they've got your support, but they also know what they need to do, but they have some choice and freedom about how they do it. So it's, and that's a real, I think that's a really difficult balance as an early leader is to getting getting that right because we know that micromanaging is one of the worst things you can do. Vanessa, I'm curious what you would say on this. So in the world in which we live today of social media, all you hear about, it's almost like there's not supposed to be any conflict around this, right? That all we hear about is positive leadership and you know that you're given full autonomy and it's speaking to the consumer. So we know as as leaders it takes hard conversations. It takes difficult discussions. It takes leaning into conflict that not every day is roses and butterflies. And not every day is a conflict avoidant. Not every day is going to feel like one of those happy days from the circumstances that come your way. But so much yeah. of this is emotional and mental that you have to work through that to find your inner happiness. But as we look at social media, and we look at LinkedIn and we look at all of the positive quotes and all of the comments about the way it should feel versus the way it does feel. 
it can be intimidating as a new leader, as a new manager and say, gosh, how am I going to make everything perfect? So what would you share with that? Well, I think, I mean, one of the, I mean, this is one of the keys to happier living is what's called self-compassion or self is our key of acceptance. So acceptance is actually recognizing, firstly, recognizing that what we see and hear around us on social media is presenting a false view. So limit our diet of that to some degree. But the second is recognize that no one is perfect, even if they're presenting as perfect and we're seeing them as perfect. No one is perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has stronger points and weaker points. So once we start to think like that, you know, and when we notice, I mean, notice the the voice in your head. So when you mess up, when you think, oh God, I this should have been much better, you know, I should have handled this better as a leader or a manager, you know, that person over there is doing a brilliant job and I'm kind of like really finding it hard. When, often when we've got the voice in our head, it's just like, oh, you should, you should be doing better. You should be doing better. You're just not good enough. We have this harsh, really harsh critic in our head that kind of wants us to do what wants the best for us, wants us to do well, but what it's actually doing is activating the threat systems in our primitive emotional brain. So we're actually kind of undermining our own performance as well by that harsh tone. You know, as a kid, if somebody gave you a really harsh critique, you felt really terrible. It didn't help you. It made you avoid punishment, not want to do a better job. So it's noticing that voice and then turning, trying to turn that voice into a wise and kind coach, which is often something like, okay, Vanessa, you messed up. And that doesn't feel good. I can see that doesn't feel good. You know, it's almost like this is the conversation in your head. And we all have these conversations in our head. Okay. So firstly, recognize that you're not the only person in this world to mess up. You're not going to be the last. It's not good. So everybody messes up at some time. Let's think about what we can learn from this and how we can take it forward or how can we move forward from this. So it's a kind of changing that voice in our head. And what that does is it dials down the threat system in our primitive emotional brain. So this is not really cognitive. These primitive emotional brain is very instinctive. And it starts to tap into the two other kind of core emotional systems in our primitive brain. One is our kind of care and connect system because I'm being kinder to myself, not soft, but kinder. And then it, and once my, when my threat system is calmed down, I can then activate the kind of resource seeking, the learning kind of system, if you like. So it's so cultivating a kind of an inner wise coach rather than an, a harsh critic, I think is something that is really powerful. And particularly for people who are very driven, have very high standards, very motivated. When things don't turn out as we intend, it can be particularly tough. So really cultivating a compassionate inner voice. And, it, and the word compassion has two components. We often think, oh, it's a kind of soft word, but actually it has two words. One is courage, two parts of it. One is courage to look into and face something difficult, and then the motivation to try and move beyond that, to alleviate that suffering, to stop that suffering. Like, so it's a kind of, so there's a kind of courageous component and there's a, an action-oriented component. So compassion isn't soft. It's actually quite a kind of tough thing. Vanessa, so much of this, I also want to add, is you're not alone, that you are in this journey of coming back and leading and guiding yourself and others well takes community, takes connection, takes 
You know, the, as I often call, sometimes it takes your 3am friends that you need to call just to vent and to seek good wisdom and advice and read from great authors like yourself and take courses that and continually learning and staying within community is a critical way of doing this. It certainly is one of the many reasons why we've built a community at Talent Magnet Institute to walk alongside of leaders. The mm. quote we use often is leadership is a journey and you don't have to walk it alone. I love that. Yeah, In community cool. together. So those listening, those watching, be encouraged that you're not alone. That yes, this is can be difficult, can be very difficult at times. And you're going to wrestle with struggles. And did I do this right? And how do I go back and respond? It's okay to ask for forgiveness from your team. They don't expect you to have all the answers. Nobody's expecting you to be perfect. And it's actually interesting because when we do kind of express that we don't have all the answers and let's figure this out together, you know, as a leader, even to your team, actually that a little bit of vulnerability makes your team feel more trusting of you, more involved. You know, when we try to be this perfect leader with all the answers, we're actually distancing ourselves. But it's quite interesting from the science of yoga. So the framework I developed from Action for Happiness for the 10 Keys to Happier Living <laughs> is the book. But the first, so the acronym is Great Dream for the 10 Keys. And the first is actually the first two. So two of these keys so a fifth of the model, if you like, are all about our connections with others. And the G is for giving, it's for helping. And there's a curious thing, because I find sometimes when people understand the psychology and the neuroscience behind some of this, then it makes them, it makes it easier to kind of accept it and engage as a leader. That when we do sort of helpful or kind things for other people, not only is it good for them, but it activates the reward centers in our own brain. So, which is, so that makes sense. And actually, if we're happier, we tend to help others more. So let's flip that around. It can be easier often to help somebody else when they ask for help than to ask for help when you need it. Most people when I ask, they know it's much easier to help others than to ask for help. But if we flip it and think, well, actually, if I'm asking, reaching out for someone, A, it's building a connection with them, showing that I'm willing to be a little bit vulnerable it enables you to be a little bit vulnerable when you need help and reach out to me. But also it's an opportunity for you to boost your well-being by helping me, you know. So we know that. So if, if somebody, you know, by helping me is getting a boost to, you know, a dopamine boost to their reward center or whatever, it's win-win. And that is how you build social connection. And we are hardwired for social connection. So that certainly made me when I learned that research, more able to kind of reach out when I needed it for yeah, some help. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, and we see it, Vanessa, inside of our learning journeys and the communities that get formed, that it's just an increase of like, I have support. These individuals understand me. The feedback that I'm getting, the experience is I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who has dealt with these and I can mm. seek wisdom and I can ask questions. And it's no different. You know, we say often that when you're a young child, you have teachers, mm. whether you're a great student or a student that struggles, you have teachers. When you're an athlete, you have coaches, whether you're a great athlete or an athlete that has potential inside of them that hasn't come out yet or one that struggles. And for some reason, when we go into the workplace, a lot of those support mechanisms fall away. Mm. And it doesn't surprise me that we're in this thing called great resignation, which we keep yeah. saying is really the great realization 
Yes. We want to be in organizations that support us, that encourage, that protect, that are there with us and accept everything we bring with them. And if you're not in an organization like that, or you're not in a leadership team like that, that's why people are shifting because they need that. We finally recognize that we're a priority too. And it's extremely important that we focus on that. I would encourage all of our listeners to purchase a copy to 10 Keys to Happier Living. I would invite them all to learn about Action for Happiness. Yeah, um, and 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 actually think about this one as well. I mean, the ten keys to happy living are really practical framework. I've worked with Microsoft with them, with a whole bunch of other organisations around them. But also this one, which is about, and I wrote the chapter of work in this, and the co-wrote the introduction, is to actually think about how can we use some of these psychological principles, if you like, the things that enable all human beings to feel good and function well, to change our workplaces, you know, and it's kind of, this science is out there. It's almost like if you, you know, we designed our organizations and our structures and a lot of the processes and things that performance management processes and all these things that we, many organizations still have. It's almost like we designed them on a, in a simpler time when we have much less psychological and emotional understanding and the research and it treated people like cogs. So if we were going to design a new workplace for today, we've got all this research and psychology. Let's rethink some of these things about what's really going to work, what's really going to bring the best out of people and create. I mean, I, you, my view is, and I argue in the book, the Creating the World We Want to Live In book, that it's corporate social responsibility and stuff. Because if I'm unhappy at work, if I think that my work isn't valued, that it doesn't really make a difference, that's not just affecting me and leading to me feel depressed or burnt out or whatever and underperform. It's also affecting my family, my community, because we know that when we're happier, we help, we contribute more in our community. We're more active citizens, engaged citizens. You know, so this is a, it's a corporate social responsibility to care about these conditions in these places. And you know, we have a role to play as well. So it's not just all top down from the organization. Individuals also have to understand what they can do to manage their own well-being and their own emotional state and psychological state and how they're impacting that of others. So it's a kind of pretty messy kind of multiple way process. But it's I believe that we need to embed these kind of the psychological understanding to create, literally create workplaces that work for us all. I love that. So everyone, again, go out and capture a copy of Creating the World We Want to Live In. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us and our audience and our community. And we look forward to our next conversation to continue the dialogue around bringing all of this goodness and how to help our early to mid-career professionals, how to help the organizations that have so much responsibility. We know you have a lot of responsibility for those for leading yourself and for leading others. But we hope that each and every one of these conversations help provide the tools, the resources, the support, the conversation to help you lead well for yourself and for your relationships, work, community, and life. Vanessa, thank you for being with us today. You're most, you're most welcome, Mike. It's an absolute pleasure. So uh, good luck with all your work. And uh, yeah, I look forward to staying in contact. Thank you so much. And we look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. 
Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.